Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and First Amendment Friday, my favorite day of the week. Now, consider this. If you didn't think that Joe Biden's open border with Mexico is dangerous enough already, consider the report that the Mexican military has seized at least 10 improvised explosive devices down on the border. And now Customs and Border Protection, which is a Joe Biden agency, you know, the one that's supposed to safeguard our border, but the one that Joe Biden has been using to facilitate and make even easier the illegal entry of literally millions of illegal aliens into America. Customs and Border Protection is now warning its agents, be careful, there may be improvised explosive devices out there as well. Yeah, I know it's a major problem. But welcome to First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our X poll. We have been calling it the Twitter poll for about 20 years, and now it's the X poll. Should Hunter Biden face criminal prosecution for defying a congressional subpoena. I think he should. I'm going to answer that one. Yes. But let me tell you why we're asking the question. You see, a couple of years ago, when there were people who refused to to comply with a congressional subpoena, the January 6th witnesses, and they said, no, I'm not going to comply with that subpoena. Well, Joe Biden said, and I'll quote him directly, I hope the committee goes after them and holds them accountable criminally. So Joe Biden, at least two years ago, believed in criminal consequences if you defied a congressional subpoena. Now, the question is today, when his son does the same damn thing, Hunter Biden shows up on Capitol Hill this week. He he has been subpoenaed to appear for a behind the doors deposition is what it amounts to prior to his public testimony. And he said, I'm not going to comply. Well, Daddy Joe believes in criminally prosecute pe- pe- cr- cr- prosecuting people who don't comply with congressional subpoenas. Does he believe that his son should be held to the same standard of the law? I believe he does not. Now, I wish Joe Biden were asked some tough questions by reporters saying, if you believed in criminal consequences for failure to comply with a congressional subpoena two years ago when it had to do with January 6th, do you still agree with it when it affects one of the members of your own family? You can find the X poll on Twitter at Lars Larson Show and on our website at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join. You should, too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now. Uh, it's a First Amendment Friday, so I want to take your calls. And I want to let you know what's coming up the rest of this hour, because we've got some great things coming up. Republicans have had a House majority for a year now. What exactly have they accomplished for the country? I would say not much, but we'll dig into that. If you're expecting a baby, should you protect yourself and a little one by getting the COVID-19 vaccine? 
Not my favorite idea, and I notice that most uh, most parents are not doing it, and I think they're right. It's their decision. Does the new Obama-produced film Leave the World Behind hate all of America, or does it only hate white people? I could guess on that one. And take just a moment to cast a vote in our X poll at LarsLarson.com and at Show on what we used to call Twitter. To your calls now at 866-439-5277. Let's go to Cindy. Hey, Cindy, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, I want to talk about um, the incandescent light bulb ban. Yep, which is already in place, and they're just about all gone, aren't they? They are all gone. You can't buy them anymore. They can't sell them anymore without a fine. Um, And for me... I think this is kind of off people's radar screen, except for those of us. So I have traumatic brain injury, and I can't thank you, and I can't see um, with LED light bulbs. I can't see. I get headaches. Um, The only I have to wear dark glasses everywhere I go, um, except in my own house where I have incandescent lighting. Um, So Biden actually banned a medical device for me. Well, he he continued it, although the ban on incandescents began a lot earlier than that. I mean, they began to ban them uh, quite some time ago, didn't they? I don't know. I I mean, it took me by surprise. I didn't know anything about it until it was too late, basically. Well, I wish I had. And, and, you know, I know there are still some specialty light bulbs. Um, I don't have a ceiling fan in my house right now, but I know there there are some in-can bulbs that are still allowed for that because for some reason they haven't figured out how to make the uh, LED bulbs work for that. But I wish I could give you better advice than the fact that this has already been done and it's already been done by bureaucracy, not by the United States Congress. Cindy, thanks for the call. Uh, let's go to Rod. Hey, Rod, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, good afternoon, Lars. I, uh, I've had a couple of things on my mind. I've spent some time in real estate. I've been a businessman prior to that. And a couple of things that's really bothering me is this Airbnb business. Um, they say that uh, government starts in the local communities. Yeah. And... Uh, and this is a, a threat to those local communities. And um, the bigger it gets, the more it spreads. And each house in a community that goes into Airbnb no longer is responsible for governance in local communities. It's how no so? longer. How so, though? Pardon? How is that true? Um, in other words, if somebody decides to rent their house or part of their house as an Airbnb, what does that have to do with local governance? I, I missed well, your point. Well, I'm sorry. I, I'm talking about homes in general, not not additional homes on a person's property. I'm talking about a home like in a cul-de-sac community that turns into an Airbnb. It's no longer involved in the responsibility of local community as far as a family is concerned. Well, they still pay taxes, it's, right? Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about if there's no... no if the resident there doesn't vote, then they're not in the, the, the residents of a full-time Airbnb would not be voting because they don't live there full-time, right? Correct. But the house no longer has governance in the local community. I don't know what you no mean by governance. What do you mean by governance? Okay, okay, I'll explain that. No one in, involved in a, in a house like that 
that home is taken off of the um, responsibility in the community for local governance. Like no, in, but, uh, but Rod, Rod, hold on. You're, 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 in, in, hold on, Rod, Rod. I'm trying to understand your point. If somebody owns property okay, in a community, they're going to pay property taxes on it. But if somebody owns a rental house and they don't live in that community, they're not voting. But the rental house still has to pay property taxes, doesn't it? Yes, but whoever's in that house is not part of the community. They are not involved. But okay, and that's true of any house that's a rental, whether it's Airbnb or just a conventional rental. Rod, I appreciate the call. Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday, and you've got the Lars Larson Show. conversation and talk journalism at 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. We've got to accommodate our friend Christian Toto, which I'm happy to do. He is the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, and he has an obligation, so he's joined us a bit early uh, for a Friday. Christian, how are you? I am great, and thank you so much for again for helping us. No, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I mean, I- anytime, because I like your insights. Now, I actually brought up this movie to you, and you said you hadn't seen it, but unlike me, you have access to films that, that I don't get a chance to see as early as you would. And this one comes out of the, uh, I, I, I'm going to blame a lot of it on Obama, but it's called Leave the World <laughs> Behind. Well, you know, I mean, he and his wife got some big paychecks. What, they get $90 million or something? And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, what what's this movie all about? And is it just about... Uh, hating America or hating just white people in America? Well, let me, let me back up. It is a, a bit of a dystopian story. It's about these two different families that come together, and something's happening in the country. There's a blackout. Uh, the Wi-Fi goes down. TV is down. Something's going wrong, and they can't quite figure it out. So it's almost like the start of an of a apocalyptic movie where we don't know. There was a lot of questions being asked. But given that, there, one family is white, one family is black. And there's a scene that a lot of people are focusing on where the black family talks about, okay, if, if things are going bad, if the country's going south, what do we do? We'll make sure we don't trust people, specifically white people. That's the conversation. Now, it yeah. started by uh, a young woman who is, in th- when you watch the movie, she's fairly woke. She's, I mean, I, I'd say she's certainly progressive, and she kind of tackles a lot of, maybe checks a lot of the politic boxes there. But, and so people say, well, this is a racist movie, blah, blah, blah. And I have to come to the movie's defense on two fronts. One, it's actually a pretty good movie. It, it's, it's got a lot of tension. It's interesting. It's novel. And there's some great acting here. Uh, Mahershala Ali is great. Julia Roberts is excellent, as is Ethan Hawke. But also, you know, I don't want to get to this knee-jerk point in our lives where if you see a movie and there's a character who displays some racist thinking that we shut down, that we out, get outraged, I mean, you're allowed to show characters from a wide variety of points of view. And no, I agree. I agree. People, no, Christian, I couldn't agree with you more about that because there are times where you want to illustrate something about somebody's characters. So you use, have them use words, have them use, you know, the way they behave in certain. So you learn something about the character. So you have more than just a cardboard cutout character. Exactly. And even the Julie Roberts character, 
she seems a bit borderline racist early in the film. And what I like about the movie is that there's a lot of layers to all the characters. They're, they're not good, evil, black, white, whatever you want to you know, describe them. They are complicated, and they are willing to learn and grow and as the movie goes along. And I think it's one of the best things about the movie is that it has those layers and that those the nuance that you want from a, a story like this. So, But, you know, it gets a lot of attention. I understand we're living in tribal times, and it is disconcerting because, you know, because I think the, if you were to ask the filmmakers, did you mean for this to be a, a bit of a racist moment where they're judging people? But I guarantee they wouldn't say yes, and I think that's interesting as well. And that's, well, that's just my guess, but I, you know. You know, I guess what bothers me is, Christian, there are times where if I'm watching a movie or reading a book and I see that somebody has sort of shoehorned in something thinking, well, I better add something here to keep the woke crowd, you know, happy. And so they kind of attach it like attaching the kitchen sink to something. And and you say, mm -hmm. why did you put that in there? On the other hand, when somebody's skillful enough to add some an element to a movie that maybe they wanted to get in for whatever reason, but it seems to naturally flow from the story, then that makes sense. And it's when they do the clunky add-on, the one where it's like, well, we had to strap some wokeness to this one, you know, just keep everybody in, in Hollywood happy, so so we'll throw this in. And and it kind of clunks in, because when I looked at that line, and that was the one that drew a lot of people's attention, is uh, two people sure. talking, I think they might be in bed about to go to sleep, saying, well, from this point on, uh, we, we're not going to trust people, and especially white people. You could have left that line off, and it wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have changed the nature of the scene. Just saying, we're in a place where we can't trust anybody. That's scary enough as as it is. But then to throw in the black character saying, especially white people, was there some meaning to that in the movie that 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 character needed to be presented that way? Well, I will say that when you it's maybe early to mid film that that sequence arrives, but also early in the movie, Julia Roberts's character seems very suspicious of the black. Uh, man and his uh, adult daughter in a way that seems uh, not unnatural. warranted and yeah. not unnatural, but just why is she so hard on them? Why is she being so critical of them? And you could say maybe she has some bigoted feelings or you could say she's a mama bear. She's got kids in the house and these are strangers and she's just being very protective. But I think, again, yep. that is part of good storytelling where you've got these characters where you don't quite know how they measure up. And as the story goes on, you see different things develop. And, and I, mean, I don't want to give away spoilers, but things change, things grow. There are different interpretations. And again, all to the movie's credit. And by the way, it's about an extended blackout, and then bad things start to happen. And we had a blackout just the other night, or a short one, uh, in New York City. So so maybe we're on the way to that right now. I, I, under the Biden administration, I'm sure we are headed to extended blackouts, but that's a whole different issue. Let's talk about the Wonka flick, because I will tell you that Willy Wonka, the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is a, is a favorite of mine. It's also a favorite of my granddaughter. So what about this new Wonka flick? Is it any good? It is, and I'm surprised by that. I mean, it just felt like a cash grab. Why do we even need a Wonka prequel? You know, the usual cynicism that we greet certain products from Hollywood. But the person behind the scenes here is also the director of Paddington and Paddington 2, which are very sweet, charming, funny, lovable movies. And he brings some of that, that sentiment here. Um, you know, Timothy Chalamet is, Chalamet is the main character. And, you know, they don't even try to connect him really with the Gene Wilder character of yore. And I think that's good because no one could really evoke what Gene did in that film. So this is a younger, more innocent Wonka. And it's all about how he tries to be a chocolatier early in life. So 
it's it's a musical. Uh, I found the, the songs charming. Uh, nothing amazing. I'm not wasn't singing them after the movie wrapped. But you know, it's light. It's whimsical. It's it's certainly appropriate for kids. And I think as bad as it could have been, I think it's perfectly fine. And I think it will do well with audiences. I'd be very curious to see what their reaction is. But again. Gene Wilder, the original, you can't top it, and I don't think they, they try to here. It's just a different approach. I'm talking to the guy we call our movie guy, and that's Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. And again, I'm fishing to find out what can I look forward to over the, we, over the, uh, the holiday weeks ahead, heading up to the first of the year. You know, Maestro is coming very soon. It's going to debut on Netflix Maybe in a week or so, I don't have the exact date in front of me. Oh, and there's a nose controversy, isn't there? Isn't there? That's right, with Bradley uh. Cooper, Leonard Bernstein. And, and, you know, so, but the early reviews are good. I haven't got a chance to look at it yet, but I'm very curious about that. If you need more popcorn entertainment, the next Aquaman film comes out on the 22nd. So that's uh, you know, heading our way. And also Ferrari, which is by Michael Mann, the great director behind Heat and a lot of other films. Adam Driver plays the main character, and that's, of course, the racing family. So some interesting films, a little bit more you know, adult-minded. You know, the Oscar-based films are still coming our way. And then I think you're going to see some other movies heading our way later. There's some delays where they just kind of pop up in New York or L.A., like American Fiction, which is a very interesting movie about the literary world, and it's a satire of, of, of kind of the overwoke nature of it, which I think people will find very welcoming. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see that there's going to be movies kind of trickling out over the next three or four weeks. So if I liked Ford versus Ferrari, I'm going to like Ferrari as well? I don't know. I think the subject matter, there is certainly some overlap there. I, again, I haven't screened it yet, but it comes out Christmas Day. And we shall see. And by the way, if you want to laugh and you've got a very thick skin, there's a new Netflix special with Ricky Gervais that's dropping on Christmas Day as well. Oh, I like him. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, he's funny. So uh, I, I am curious when we get closer on Maestro and after you've seen it, I'd like because I, I read uh, and it was a couple of weeks ago. I read a couple of pieces where I guess Cooper has to wear a prosthetic because you know because of the look of the Maestro and and you say why is everybody getting so wound up about it? But it, it really seemed to be a, a tiny little you know tempest in a teapot for just a moment about oh my God, it's so insulting or it's it's got stereotypes in it or whatever. And it kind of got me curious about well how. And then I saw pictures of him playing the character and of course the real man. And I thought no, I think they hit it just about right. That is Christian Toto. He is the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. Christian, thanks very much. Coming up in a moment, I want to get to your phone calls and emails. Yeah, we've been talking about leaf blowers and we'll talk about biden and ukraine and all kinds of other things um 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at larslarson.com check out my instagram feed you'll find that on instagram and tell alexa to play the lars larson the show. lars larson show Lars? 
Follow him on Twitter at Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday. I want to see what's on your mind, but consider a couple of things. Number one, if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS or 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we haven't had any good naysayers just yet. But if you disagree with me on my point of view, I'm glad to put you on and we will put you first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And let's start with, uh, oh, let's go to uh, Ray in Alabama. Hey, Ray, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, this was a year or so ago, maybe a little more. And I heard on a couple different talk shows where I think it was Turkey was going to send Ukraine MiGs, and Biden vetoed it. Yeah. Now I was curious as to why or how he has that authority. Well, most of the time when that happens, so let me make uh, what we call a wag, a wild blank guess. Um, but I, I think this is how, because I've had people ask me, well, how can, you know, how can the United States tell Israel what to do? We don't tell them what to do, but we tell them what we will do if they do that is what it comes down to. So it's, it's like if you send your kid off to college and your kid's going to study engineering, which would be smart. And one day he calls up Dad Ray, Daddy Ray in Alabama, says, Dad, I've decided to switch from engineering to uh, you know, something worthless like ethnic studies. And, and you say, if you do that, the college uh, the tuition stops. So you haven't told him what he can do. You've just told him what you will do if he changes his major from something that comes with a good paycheck to something that comes with a uh, no paycheck, and all you have to learn how to say is, would you like uh, a latte or would you like a mocha? Um, and so that's what probably happened. Turkey, okay. almost all these other countries, we, we give aid to, we have military bases, we have a lot of things that if the country does things we disagree with, we can stop giving those things. that make sense? It does. It certainly does. And that's how I think they got it done. Let's go to Ron in Idaho. Hey, Ron, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. I just wanted to call and say what a wonderful president Donald Trump was. And nobody really talks about that a whole lot. He made a fool out of all the other politicians because he he fulfilled his promises. Yep. And he looked out for us American people. And you couldn't buy them off. And the establishment didn't want the country doing well. And he had us, he had us firing on all cylinders. And, yeah, uh, he did. Ron, I, try, and, I talk about Trump, but I'm a big Trump fan. And I'm aware that people are just going to discount much of what I say. But Donald Trump really did, as you say. He delivered on promises more so than even other Republican presidents. And, uh, and he's honest. And he can't be bought yeah. off, as you say. In fact, oh. it cost him about a billion dollars in his net worth to be president for four years. And I've often, yeah. I have often asked people, how many of you would give up a third or a quarter of your net worth to hold an office? I mean, where you live in Idaho, if you live in Boise, would you give up a quarter of the value of your house and your bank account and your 401k to be mayor of yeah. Boise for a year, for, for a couple of years? Yeah, no. I couldn't afford it, but no. he made a fool out of all the other politicians because he came in and represented me and you and all the American people, and he was wonderful, 
and I love your talk show. I think well, you're one of the best. And you're, you're, so very ge- you're very generous, Ron. I'll try to live up to that. But here's one thing I want to point out to you. You're going to be yeah. told by the legacy media that your point of view is not in, in keeping with the American public. And I'm going to tell you why I think you are lined up with where the majority of the public is right now. And here, here are the pieces of proof I would use. Number one, the Republican Party has been offered a half a dozen different candidates. And despite all that, despite all the bad press for Trump, uh, the majority of Republicans, more than 50 percent, say they want Trump to be the nominee. So that's the first step. Second step, Trump has to beat Biden. Now, Biden gets all this favorable press. The mainstream legacy media, for the most part, carries water for him. They cover up his mistakes. They ignore his you know, ridiculous behavior and the fact that he's yeah. checked out most of the time. And yet, in six out of the seven uh, of the contested uh, the swing states in America, Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden. And the average of all the polls as of last week, so all the high polls and the low polls and everything else, Donald Trump comes out about three percentage points ahead of Joe Biden. And that's saying yeah. something when Joe Biden gets all this favorable press and the press court yeah. ignores the, you know, doubled mortgage interest rate. They ignore the massive inflation. They ignore the way that people are really suffering under uh, Joe Biden. And they bash Trump up one side and down another. Plus, he's got 91 indictments and all the rest of that. And he's he's winning on most of those cases. Despite all of that, Trump is the choice of America. So I think your point of view is absolutely right on. Now, let me go to uh, Ray. Hey, Ray, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Oh, thanks, Lars. Uh, well, I like leaf blowing, and I wanted to talk about it. Uh, I missed some of the program where so do I. other people were talking about and, I, you know, I've been blowing leaves for a while. I used to rake leaves, but leaf blowers work really well. Yep. And they, we know we only break them out in the fall. Uh, there's a little bit of leaf blowing, you know, grass blowing, but it's really not that big a deal. And these people who have an agenda against leaf blowing ought to just focus on something else. They're just, I don't they, know, they, give it up. They, it's, it's they should, but, Ray, when you look at what they say they're trying to do, they say we're going to save the planet because of pollution that's coming out of leaf blowers. And you say, how about protesting the one new coal-fired electric plant per week that China is beginning construction on? How about, you know, protesting any of that? But no, they want to go after things that are right at home with you. And, and that's what they want to do. I think to a large extent, they really care more about wanting to tell people what to do. And I don't like being told what to do, and most Americans don't like to, being told what to do. On that note, let's go to Jamie. Hey, Jamie, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, like I said, you know, um, I have a margarita mixer that has uh, two-stroke power. <laughs> Would you do and steal it you off your my- off your string trimmer and convert your uh, your margarita mixer? No, I'm a timber cutter, so. No. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, Jamie, I, look, I'm, I, I'd am i be a liar if I told you I don't have some battery-powered tools. 
I mean, it's nice if I got to use a sawzall oh. somewhere or or, or a, a screwdriver, you know, a, a drill driver. Uh, it's nice not to have to be dragging a cord all the way up to the ceiling to, you know, cut something or drill a hole. But on the other hand, there are some things for which two-stroke engines are the best. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm with you. It's like this. Pretty soon they're going to say electrical log trucks. Okay. <laughs> you know how much power it's going to take to get a load of logs out? The truck can get up there. Let's talk about warehouses. Get a truck up there. But how are you going to get it back out? That's a lot of load on an electrical motor. Yep. And by the way, Jamie, the bigger the motor they have to put on that electric log truck, the bigger the battery. Pretty soon you reach that you reach that point of diminishing returns where you got an eighty thousand pound truck and the electric motors and the battery weigh forty thousand pounds and you and they'll say, Yeah, you might be able to put twenty or thirty thousand pounds of logs on there, but you're not going to begin to pull stuff out of the woods the way a good diesel engine will. And Jamie, I think you are absolutely right. Back in just a moment. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. 866-HEY-LARS. Check out our Instagram feed, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show, too. too far away just tell alexa play the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a first amendment friday always glad to get your calls and i'll get those in just a bit uh welcoming back to the program dr henry miller the medical doctor molecular biologist he's now at the american council on science and health founding director of the fda's office on biotechnology dr miller welcome back Good to be with you, Lars. Thank you. Now, I want to ask you about COVID uh, vaccination for pregnant moms, because I'm curious about this. I, I'm also curious a bit about vaccination of kids, because there was a point where both the CDC, the FDA and state officials were all saying, we've got to get all these kids vaccinated. And then I noticed that the numbers seem to be coming in relatively low, uh, you know, the, those that would indicate you know, how many parents had, had got their kids vaccinations for COVID-19. Um, and, uh, and and that made me curious about how that's going. And lately, it seems the government isn't even bothering to talk about it at all, other than Joe Biden announcing, I think, yesterday that he had just signed three new contracts for three new vaccines. So what should we make of all this? And how does this apply to young ladies who are pregnant? Well, let's do um, the, the pregnant women first. Okay. You know, with, with um, I, I, I used to review vaccines when I was at FDA, and there's a, a very uh, high level of proof that's necessary for vaccinating or for giving any, any drug to large numbers of healthy people. Right. And that is, that's especially true for um, women who are pregnant, because there's always the threat of teratogenicity, that is, uh, effects, undesirable genetic effects on the, the developing fetus. Um, so uh, the, um, I, I can tell you that there has been uh, a lot of follow-up 
of uh, vaccination of, of pregnant women, primarily by a large eminent group of Canadian uh, physicians, researchers. Uh, and they found that there's a protective effect of, um, from infection of the, of the women, which you would expect, but also um, a significant protective effect on the infants uh, postnatally. Uh, fewer hospitalizations, fewer doctor's visits, uh, fewer deaths. So um, we're pretty certain uh, about that. And the most recent study from that Canadian group was in 142,000 kids, newborns. So that's pretty, that's pretty compelling evidence. What did they find? I mean, if it's 142,000, was that a sample that was also pregnant women uh, who had taken the mRNA shot and pregnant women who had not? Yes, exactly. And what did they find? Was it, they, was they, it they statistically found, significant? Uh, yeah, I can, I can quote you here. The risks of severe neonatal morbidity, neonatal death, and admissions to the ICU were all significantly lower during the first month of birth in infants whose mothers had received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, and protection continued for six months thereafter. So and and the um, the p values the uh, probabilities were very yep. favorable. There was no question that it was statistically significant. I bore my producers by talking about p values all the time because I say, okay, how, how certain are you of those numbers? Because when you get down to really small numbers, sometimes you know a, a, you know one or two. Uh, difference can make a gigantic difference. But you know that I've been skeptical of the mRNA shot all along. And I, and I remain skeptical. And I'm, I'm a bit, you know, curious about some of the things the government has done and hasn't done. And, and is there a way you can address that question of why a few months ago, they were talking a very big game about, wow, we got to get all the, all the kids vaccinated. And then all of a sudden, all of that talk disappeared. And I also got the impression they weren't getting a lot of response from parents out there, that the numbers weren't very high. Am I wrong? The, the, the number, you're right. The numbers aren't very high. And in fact, the CDC um, issued an alert just today um, uh, of concern about the low level of vaccination, not only of kids, but for uh, adults as well, for flu vaccine, which is uh, way down. It's only about 40% of the uh, eligible population, which is normally it's in the range of uh, 50 to 60% uh, or more. Uh, and also we're under vaccinated on RSV, which is a uh, respiratory illness for, uh, and the vaccine is for people over age 60 and, and uh, of COVID. Only about 17% of the population is um, up to date, and it's only about 6% in kids, which is really a, a, a very bad finding. The uh, one, one salient uh, finding in the um, CDC alert was that about 15 or 16 percent of people who get COVID are experiencing long COVID, which we're not hearing a great deal about. Now, part of that now, is, is that good news or bad news? That's bad news. That's a very high percentage. No, no. But the, the, re, the fact that we're not hearing, I mean, usually anything that ails people, you end up hearing a lot about. Uh, especially because of social media these days, if people are suffering from something and they say, hey, this is really taking my life apart, you hear about it, 
if we're not hearing about it, not from the medical community, but from the, uh, the, the folks who are suffering themselves, what does that mean? Well, uh, I'm hearing I'm hearing a lot about it from mainly from practicing physicians who are uh, seeing a follow-up visit after follow-up visit by patients who have um, post-exertional malaise, fatigue, uh, pain, insomnia, uh, palpitations, and so on. Um, now, some of these are relatively mild, but um, if you if you're having symptoms after a COVID infection, that means that there's organ damage. That's sort of a surrogate for organ damage, and we Ouch. know that uh, there's damage to uh, to uh, brain tissue, cardiac tissue, um, various endocrine organs, uh, and uh, I think we're going to see uh, the sequelae of that down the road with uh, people having premature chronic illnesses. Now, you had to do a lot of Latin in medical school, didn't you? <laughs> not, not much. <laughs> a have, have, you ever, have you ever heard cura t ipsum? Uh, no. It comes from my favorite doctor, Luke, and, and it's physician heal, heal thyself. I think the problems the CDC is having with people believing what the government is telling them are largely self-imposed by the doctors at CDC. They well, cause people to distrust them, and they haven't done anything to repair that. Well, it, it, it's hard to repair trust when, it, when it's been lost. And uh, the previous CDC director needed real help in, uh, in science communication. Uh, but, you know, for people who are in doubt, I, I say ask your physician, ask your health care provider. Fair enough. That's Dr. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health. Doc, thanks very much. We'll get more of your First Amendment Friday calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show. It's a First Amendment Friday, always my favorite day of the week. And why is that? Because we open up the phone lines and we let you say whatever happens to be on your mind. Glad to have you with me and always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. I want to give you a couple of thoughts on something we talked about earlier this week. Because I think that colleges around America have just sent a devastating message to your athlete daughter or granddaughter. Don't bother with women's sports and the scholarships they might bring because, young lady, you're going to have to compete with men, and they win most of the time. Now, I pointed out that the University of Washington this week, we found out, had awarded a women's volleyball scholarship. Actually, they have 12 of them, but one of them was awarded to a biological man. So 11 of the 12 women's scholarships went to actual women. One of them went to a man. 
That's the first time that anybody's been able to uh, identify that happening in America. I suspect it's going to happen more, and it is exceedingly bad news for all the young ladies in your families. One went to a man, a young man who apparently went to a uh, a very nice pro- college preparatory school uh, down in Sherman Oaks, California. Apparently, he was not very, uh, I guess, uh, oppressed. Uh, because I'm guessing that he probably comes from a family with a certain amount of money. And when you say 11 of the 12 go to women, one of them goes to an actual man instead of woman, it brings a whole new spin to that idea of the 12th man now, doesn't it? And who wins out of all this nonsense? Well, the University of Washington and every other university that follows this path, it gets to demonstrate its woke political correctness at the expense of women. The team likely benefits because you put the muscles and reach of a six-foot man like the guy who got the scholarship this week on the volleyball team, the women's volleyball team. They're going to have a tremendous advantage during games. But God help your dollar, uh, your daughter if she catches a volleyball in the face that was spiked by this guy. And the LGBTQ crowd, they're going to love it. They score another victory. Who? Against women. And who loses? Every single girl who dreams that volleyball, track and field, swimming, or any other sport is going to pay the cost of her college education because she's going to have to win that scholarship in a competition with a biological male, and she will lose many of those times. And what do we hear from the so-called women's rights groups? You know, the groups that fought for decades for Title IX equal opportunities for women? We hear crickets. Nothing. The National Organization for Women is keeping its collective mouth shut about this. They're not even standing up to say anything. I think it's fair to say that NOW now identifies as silent. As I said, it's First Amendment Friday, so let's get to your calls. Let's start with, uh, oh, we've been talking about bans on lawnmowers and weed whackers and the rest of that. Chris, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Uh, Yeah, Lars, good afternoon. I've Spent many an hour growing up in the last 60-some years mowing some grass. Yep. And, uh, in fact, all of these liberal lefties that come up with these stupid ideas are totally lacking in common sense, and I'd like to offer to help them with that. Well, how would you help them? behind a, a real mower, and those are pretty easy. You can get some grass cut. It's a lot of exercise. But by, by the way, Chris, Chris can I interject? When you said a real mower, people might have meant you, you meant R-E-A-L. I think you, I suspect you meant R-E-E-L, real mower, right? That's correct. Yeah. With about a eight or six or eight inch diameter reel that's human powered, it, it cuts, throws grass around, but they do a good job. But, uh, they my do. dad came up with an antique that has about inch and a half or two inch little cutters. And there's about, oh, a dozen of them across. Think kind of like a, uh, razor, if you will. And it actually will cut grass, but it is a lot of exercise, and I would be happy to take that to any one of these liberal nut jobs that wants to get rid of gas lawnmowers <laughs> and let them mow their grass with that thing. I've had to mow. I've had to mow with things. a real mower as well. Although I did take one, yeah. I bought it at a garage sale when I was a kid, and we turned we took the engine off and turned it into a go kart. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. those real mowers. If they don't have a motor on them and you have to push them with uh, your own uh, weight and muscles, yeah, they can be quite a challenge. So I think that's a great idea. Take the challenge to the people proposing this nonsense and say, if you believe in this, why don't you push one of these? Thanks for the uh, thanks for the call, Chris. Let's go to George. Hey, George, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. 
tie their lives. Well, the Democratic Party has abortion as part of its platform. It and does. I think the Democratic Party are malevolent pushers of abortion, and by that I mean that 95% of all abortions are performed onto women who are perfectly healthy with perfectly healthy babies. That's right. So as long as the Democratic Party insists on pushing abortion, I think we ought to stigmatize the Democratic Party and start referring to them as baby birther party. 70 million dead Americans, and the, the, their quench for innocent baby blood still hasn't satisfied. If that doesn't qualify them as baby butchers, I don't know what does. Well, and then add to that the fact that Planned Parenthood got caught selling baby parts for experimentation, and that makes it truly ugly. Thanks for the call, George. Let's go to Ramon. Hey, Ramon, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Um, I'm calling because I got a, uh, a notification on my phone this morning from the White House. From the White House? And really? From the White House, yeah. I've never received one before. But uh, Joe Biden today recognized today as uh, the Bill of Rights Day. This is uh, the anniversary of when it was ratified. And he talks about some of our First Amendment rights, and then he goes into the, the, the rights of abortion that your last caller was just talking about and how <laughs> Americans have been denied those rights. They're not in those 10 Bill of Rights. They're not. President. Um, but then I'm also a member of the National Association of Gun Rights. We fight legal battles to protect our right to bear arms, like the Second Amendment, one of those Bill of Rights, says. I got a notification from them a couple of hours later that today Joe Biden pledged to help every state in the nation set up their own organization within their nation like he has at the federal level to pass AR-15 bans, uh, what he calls assault rifle bans, uh, magazine capacity bans. Everything you can do to do away with our Second Amendment right, which is one of those bills of rights. The ending sentence in his in his talk about it being Bill of Rights Day says, "I call upon the people of the United States to observe this day with appropriate ceremonies and activities." Somebody Isn't that ironic? Inform him. Yeah, that is so insane. This this man is obviously uh, not there mentally. No, and I have a feeling he probably didn't even put that message together. That sounds like it was put together by his political handlers. And he's right. He, he, thank God, has not been able to do much in the way of legislation at the federal level to take away our gun rights. So now he's saying, since I can't get it done at the federal level, why don't we push it down to the state level? More of your calls in just a moment. And a prosecutor has brought forward the first case to seek the death penalty for a child rapist. Ever since Florida adopted that new law, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Naysayers go to the head of the line. 
at the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I got to tell you something. I am so glad to see Florida do what they have done. I was glad when the law passed, and I'll get to your calls. But now, for the first time, a central Florida prosecutor is seeking the death penalty for a man charged with raping a child. Until the Florida legislature passed that law not so long ago, and until Governor DeSantis signed it into law, it wasn't even allowed there. But what it says is, if you're convicted of the sexual battery of a child under the age of, brace yourself for this, 12, you can be subject to the death penalty. Well, Joseph Andrew Giampa, who's 36, is charged with child sexual battery and promoting the sexual performance of a child. Uh, the prosecutor, name of Gladstone, has decided to seek the death penalty that will almost certainly draw legal challenges, probably at the Florida Supreme Court and likely at the U.S. Supreme Court. Good. Get it tested, get it vetted, and, uh, and then let's get busy with putting some of those child rapists to death. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And let me go first to, uh, let's go to Mississippi, listening on the Mississippi Super Talk Network. Hey, Kip, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, how you doing today, brother? I- I'm doing quite well, sir. Man, uh, look, man, I'm, I've worked my butt off uh, since I can remember. Uh, I'm 32 years old, and... I played I played baseball in high school, but had a side job all the way through high school, and I've worked and never taken a dime off of anybody. And well, I'm got, I'm in the got, same spot. You can do it, and you ought to be proud of that. It sounds like you are, yeah. and you should be proud of that because there are so many Americans looking for a way to get by without doing it on their own. You've done it on your own, and that's something to be proud of. Yes, sir, and I was proud of that until the state of Mississippi said. Uh, took a quarter of every paycheck for the last eight months from me what for and said that i had claimed unemployment fraudulently what yes sir and you didn't claim uh, unemployment and no sir i've never taken like i said i've never taken a dime i've never taken unemployment from anyone nor have i never claimed unemployment i've always worked hard uh my grandfather told me back in 2002 2000 and 1999 right before he died that don't ever take anyone from any don't ever take anything from anyone and always work your ass off and i'm sorry to cuss sir no that's that's i think we'll uh, i think we'll allow i think the fcc will allow that one but kip so did somebody steal your identity and fraudulently file a claim on your behalf Someone, someone someone got my uh got my identity and claimed unemployment on me and I claimed a fraudulent claim with the state of Mississippi, and I got a letter from them the other day that said that it was determined to not be fraud. So what? I paid the state of Mississippi. They took $5,000 from my from my check and are not paying me back from it. And, well, tell me this, though, Kip. My, what what, what kind wife, of do... My wife, I'm, did, I'm sorry did you to get, interrupt. Did, my oh, wife and I ahead. make my wife and I make my wife and I make sixty five thousand dollars each year. Yep. And the state in the state of Mississippi we should be living very comfortably. Yep. You know what the cost of living is there? And we're struggling. I have a three month old. They took money out of my child's mouth. Well tell me and, this though, Kip. When 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 you said, look, 
I didn't file this claim. What what proof and uh, did you know the Constitution and, and we have to remember the Constitution is a very important element in things until, like this. And it's until you, proven guilty, correct? Well, that and you have a right to due process. No man or woman's life, liberty, or property, which includes your money, can be taken without due process of law. So what due process did they give you? A court hearing or anything? They did not give me any due process. They told, they, my HR emailed me. I work for Stewart Irby Company. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't. What do they do? it's an electrical it's an electrical dis- distributor okay. and they've been in business for almost 100 years we just merged with Crawford Electric Company and um they emailed my HR and my HR emailed me and said that they had been advised to take a quarter of every paycheck that i make until i pay back this claim that, that that's that called I, a, garn, a garnishment, but but here's what I don't understand. At yes, some sir. at some point, they had to prove that case against you. You know, Kip, yes, I'll tell sir. you what: if we can get your your uh, contact information, um, we we have a number of different organizations that that provide lawyers for different. They fight different kind of fights: civil rights fights, uh, land use fights, things like that. And I want to see if they'd be interested in taking a look at your case. Because there has to be some due process in there. If the state says we're going to take this man's money, they have to show proof and they have to give you due process the chance to stand up and say, that wasn't me. It was somebody else, but it wasn't me. Yes, sir. And every time I, every time I, every time I talk to someone with MDES, which is Mississippi Department of Employment Security, I, it was almost like I was talking to a, a, sno- a snobby, just, someone who didn't even want to be at work and was just passing me along to the next person. Well, hold on a second. Like I was Kip, just passed along. And, I, and I, it's I, easy for I, them to pass along something whenever they're not getting $500 a week or every two weeks taken out of their paycheck. Well, Kip, tell me this, though. Um, whoever got this money, does state of Mississippi send that out in the form of a physical check or do they do direct deposit to a bank account or what? Do you know? It was it was taken directly out of my check. Um, no, 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 no. I'm not asking that, Kip. The person oh, who okay, got the sorry. unemployment payment in Mississippi would would that if you went on unemployment, would you be getting a physical check, which has to be cashed or deposited, or were you or was it electronic funds being transferred into uh, a bank account? Well, it's it's kind of hard for me to say, Lars, because I I I don't know. Uh, well. Be, because I would, I would imagine that you would have to have an address attached to yeah, where you live well, when you do unless, a claim, right? Unless, unless, Kip, if they were doing it electronic funds, right? I pay my employees, my producers, I pay them through electronic funds transfers. The money goes straight into their checking account. I don't like writing physical checks, so I do it that way, and it's better for them and better for me. Oftentimes, when we come up to payday, they get paid early. Um, but in the case that it's electronic funds, the state of Mississippi knows which bank account, which routing number and account number that money went into. So, yes, what sir, I'm... Which, is, which is why I thought that it would be very simple for them to figure out that it wasn't me getting the funds. Right, and That's even if it was a like physical check, wrong. even if it was a physical check, Kip, they sent the check to somebody, whatever address they sent it to, but somebody had to cash that check, and usually 
if you walk into a bank, say, I want to cash a check, you need to have an account there. And they usually ask you deposit it in your account. And, and so some, whoever cashed that check, they've got proof somewhere, probably even exactly. video. And yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm right there with you. And that, I'm, I'm in the same confusing state that you are. I'm not understanding why they haven't been able to figure this out. No, because but either way, am, either way, they got to know it's whose almost, address. It's either ignorance or, or negligence. Well, that and, and I'll tell you something else, Kip. You don't know how many. I mean, there are so many states and the federal government that all got ripped off during the so-called pandemic uh, because they they that gave was money. When it took place. I mean, I, and I'll tell you, Kip, the uh, the state I live in, state of Washington. I'm surprised they haven't changed the name yet because all the woke folks don't like Washington. But state of Washington yeah. got ripped off by, believe it or not, the same the same people we laugh about, the fraud artists from Nigeria. You know, the ones who say, I'm a Nigerian prince. Give me your bank routing number and I'll send you a bunch of money. They got ripped off yes, for sir. $600 million. Not 600000 $600 million. So when the state gets ripped off, I wonder if they're just looking for, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to ask Joel to get your contact information, but I want to find out what's going on with it, because that one sounds fascinating. To have a man owe thousands of dollars because the state says you got unemployment and the man never received unemployment, they better have some pretty good proof that that money went into his account or got sent to him in a check and he cashed the check. And if they can't do that, I don't think they've given him due process. You're listening to First Amendment Friday on The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Exercising the right to free speech every day. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I got to tell you something. There was a story that broke today, and I, I, I consider this a family show. So let me describe it in the most uh, uh, the meta- metaphorical, maybe euphemistic way I possibly can. There is a story that breaks on a Friday night, and that's usually when they want to dump out stories when they don't want them to get a lot of uh, of bad attention. A Senate staffer in the U.S. Senate who we believe works for one of the Democrat members of the United States Senate. So two Senate staffers go into one of the Senate hearing rooms. Apparently, uh, they bat for the other team. They're gay. And they make a gay sex tape in a Senate hearing room, and they put it on video. And this has now been discovered. It's it's pretty disgusting. Uh, And it's out on the Internet right now. But uh, in any case, there are other members. Member of the House, Mike Collins, uh, says, Cardin Staffer Wilding making porn at work and yelling free Palestine. This is crazy. This uh, This is the kind of insanity. If you had the privilege of working for the United States Senate or for the United States House of Representatives or for the White House, you would think that you would be on your best behavior. You would think that you would understand that there are things that are disgusting and uh, that if, if you choose to do those things in private, it's not my business. But if you decide to do this as some way to send a message 
that two guys show up in a Senate hearing room, stripped down to the buff, and then take videos of, uh, of sex, gay sex, inside the U.S. Capitol, you know that things in our government have gone seriously wrong. At least some of the people back there have no respect for the institution and no respect for common decency. In any case, I'm sure we're going to be hearing more and more about this, and it'll be interesting to see what senators say about it and whether or not uh, senators who were the employers of these staffers, what action they're going to take. In any case, it's First Amendment Friday. I want to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's start with Grant. Hey, Grant, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Lars, thank you. Long-time listener. I've been been listening to you for years. Uh, Great show. Thank you. Uh, Lars, I'd actually like to talk about uh, the conversation you had uh, about the child vaccines or the uh, the vaccination of uh, pregnant women. Dr. Uh, Henry Miller, yep. Yeah. So this is my real concern there, uh, Lars, is that, you know, we're talking about a vaccine that is experimental. We yep. know that the uh, um, the results of these vaccines has been a lie uh, from the uh, from the the, the liberal um side of of the political views for you know from the beginning of this whole covid thing and you know to suggest that um a a pregnant woman give herself an experimental vaccine um to a and with a child that has virtually no immune system that is effectively working at that point uh, other than what her mother uh, you know has is just, uh, I mean, it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, you know, we know that the CDC has lied to us from from the very beginning on this, yep. uh, the, the whole COVID situation. Uh, I, I, my, my point here is, is, man, any of your listeners that, you know, heard that from Dr. Miller, do your research. The research is out there. Um, don't, I mean, don't proceed with that without uh, really going into a deep dive. There's, well, there's lots of great information. And and let me tell you, Grant, one of the things, because Henry and I disagree about the jab. I've never taken it. I, I've never taken the shot. I've never taken the boosters or anything else. That was my decision. And I deeply resented the idea that the government, especially Joe Biden, had the, had the gall to say, well, we're going to make you take it. We're going to make you through OSHA. We're going to make you through all these other things. And uh, And a lot of us just said, no, it's not for me. And I don't want anybody else to make the decision for you or anybody else. And I'll tell you what some of the scariest stuff that I saw during the pandemic that is still true today. And it's why I asked Henry, uh, you know, about the physician heal yourself. That Latin phrase is actually comes from Luke, uh, the book of Luke in in the Bible. Uh, But he's saying, hey, before you look at, at my problems, why don't you solve your own problems? Well, the CDC and the FDA suffer from that because they're telling everybody, trust us, trust us. And we say, you have violated our trust. You have lied to us before about a great many things. You've lied to us about this. And uh, and we don't trust you anymore. And the way you regain somebody's trust, number one, is a mea culpa. Use another Latin phrase. You say, you're right. I, I gave you a good reason to distrust me, and I'll acknowledge that I did that, and now I want to earn your trust back. They have not done that. And during the pandemic, 
I had several conversations with medical doctors, just regular GPs. And I would talk to them both off the air and on the air. And a few of them said, look, I'm telling all of my pregnant patients, this is not a good idea. We don't know enough about it. We don't we don't know about the the effects on you, the effects on your baby, uh, the long term effects. And 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 but they they would give that advice to their patients because that's private by law. But they told me I'm not going to say that on the air. And that's not a lot. I don't think that's a lack of courage, Grant. What they're saying is, if I want to continue to be a doctor, not not necessarily just for the paycheck, but if you want a doctor who will actually tell you the truth, if I if I say that out loud in public, guess what the state and federal authorities do? They punch your ticket and they say you can't be a doctor anymore. And Grant, that ought to scare the, the bejesus out of anybody, because when you think about scientists over the years who are told, oh, you're saying the wrong thing, the thing the government disagrees with. Here's a cup of hemlock. Drink it and die. And we say, oh, well, that's horrible. Well, what is it when the government says to a doctor, if you say out loud that you're telling your patients you don't think the jab is a good idea, we're going to pull your license. You will no longer be a doctor. You'll lose the paycheck. Yeah, you'll lose that. But you'll also lose your ability to ever do these things for other people, for other patients. So they kept their mouths shut. And I, I, I understood that. The second effect, and I think it's still the case, an awful lot of medical institutions in America right now are severely understaffed. And they'll tell you about that. They'll whine about it all day long. Say, oh, my God, we're overwhelmed. And I say, okay, why are you overwhelmed? Did you fire a whole bunch of doctors and nurses and medical professionals because they wouldn't take the jab? And if you ask them that, they'll say, yeah, we did. And when, when your hospital or your clinic was firing all those doctors and nurses, your colleagues at the hospital, did you stand up and object? Well, no. They went with the program. Now, Grant, those are the people who are still in the hospitals and the clinics, the ones that didn't object, the ones that did object and said, I'm not taking the jab. And they were sent down the road. They were dismissed. And in many cases, they were made unemployable in, in various states and regions where they said, you don't have a job and you're not going to find a job because you won't take the jab. Now, a bunch of the hospitals have said, well, we will hire people now who haven't taken the jab. And you say, well, so how about the people you fired, the people you sent down the road? And, and how about all the doctors and nurses who didn't stand up and say to the hospital, you can't fire these people. They have a right to make their own medical decision about whether or not to take the jab. And what I pointed out to Henry is, right now, we were hearing the CDC say, oh, we've got to get the, the uh, ch ch child vaccination rates for COVID back up again. Well, an awful lot of parents, I mean, you can say, well, Lars, you're crazy. You, you, you're the only one who believes that. Okay, take a look at the vaccination rates for kids, and then tell me what's happening there. I can tell you what I think it is. An awful lot of parents, both well-educated and maybe poorly educated too, but an awful lot of well-educated parents are saying, you're not sticking that in my kid. Uh, you're just not going to do it. And, and that's a sensible thing to do. That's what we're telling the government. You cheated. You lied. You, you earned our distrust. You haven't earned our trust back. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk about when a man gets a women's volleyball scholarship. That's next. This is... 
Broadcasting the sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I've been sounding off a bit. Uh, about the idea that men might impersonate women and then compete against them in sports, both in high school and in college. And I've been warning folks, saying, listen, at some point we're going to hear about a college that has granted a full-ride scholarship to a biological male who now says that he identifies as a woman. And I said that should be seen as a problem by any parents out there who have a daughter uh, who aspires to, say, get her college paid for by being very good at swimming or track and field, basketball, volleyball, whatever it happens to be. Well, now it's happened. The University of Washington has granted one of only 12 women's volleyball scholarships that it controls to a biological man. And apparently, by all accounts, he is a very good volleyball player. He stands six feet tall. Uh, he's apparently won a number of awards, and that's all great for him. What it's not great for is the women who get shut out of those opportunities, especially when you remember all the decades of effort that was put into saying, let's afford women an equal opportunity. Not a greater opportunity, but not a lesser opportunity either. And I thought we'd talk to Sally Sisk, who's a member of the PGA of America, former golf professional at the Vintage Club in Indian Wells, California. Ms. Sisk, welcome to the program. Hi, good afternoon, Lars. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to, to be, be speaking with you this afternoon. Well, you're so kind to say that. Merry Christmas in advance, but you spent almost a third of a century in the PGA, and you were reasonably successful, correct? Yes. Um, I actually tried to play a little bit of professional golf back in the late 80s and um, was not successful at that and went ahead and got my Class A PGA card um, and became a member. Um, a friend of mine and I were the 18th and 19th female members of the Southern California section in January of 92. Because you um, came into went, the sport at a time when women were not necessarily afforded an equal opportunity in, in, the, in the sport of golf. Correct. No, but what was very interesting with the PGA because more women were most of the women go into the LPGA in the teaching division and club pro, but there's some of us that go into the PGA or or do both. Um, what they did was they created shorter tees for us, so they did like 15 or 18 percent shorter distance. Because if I go play the blue tees with with um, with Joe Smith, he's going to hit the ball 50 to 80 yards further than me. So that's what was their idea of equity. And it did encourage more women to play uh, from shorter tees with the idea of, you know, we would have like the same irons into the hole as, um, as the guys did. So, okay, um, so, so they, made it, they made an effort, but they didn't really make it level and even for you. So I want to know what you think. A different sport, but when you hear that the University of Washington, which has only 12, it's a Division One school, so this is a big deal, and they have 12 scholarships they can give to women, and they've now given one of them to a biological male who just says he identifies as a woman, so he gets the free ride. And somewhere out there in America, there's a young lady who had hoped to be uh, getting that free ride scholarship for her volleyball skills, and she's not going to get it. That is correct. And when I read that last night, I was mortified. I was disgusted and disappointed that the University of Washington, because we moved from Oregon up to out, out east of Seattle, and I read that. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe that that happened. Um, so I did um, uh, email the um, the athletic director there uh, this morning. I probably won't hear back, but it's just it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, if If this gentleman wants to say he's a girl, fine. Um, but to, again, to take away uh, one of 12 scholarships 
And Lars, I don't know um, on the on the club level if you understand these young girls. They start playing club volleyball in third and fourth grade, and the amount of time and money and everything to achieve that if they you know if they're good enough to go on to a D one level, it's just crazy. And in in the D one level, there's only like you said twelve scholarship opportunities, so there's not a lot. There's D two, D three. Um, I'm not sure about the junior college for volleyball. But still, it's just it's not fair. And under this DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, I, I just think that they have completely missed the boat. I sure hope Riley Gaines is, gets over here and starts um, talking. I've actually reached out to her on Instagram and haven't heard anything. But I think the women need to start really step up to this. And, and that's, I that's think- part, But Sally, that's oh. part of what really confuses me. I mean, I've been a reporter for a long time. And I can remember NOW, a national organization for women, uh, that said we have to afford equal opportunities in the fights over t- uh, d- uh, Title IX to say at least the colleges have to afford equal opportunities. And to my read, it sounds like Title IX is effectively dead. If any man can say I identify as a woman, a woman uh, with not even the requ- not necessarily the requirement that they make any physical changes to themselves, but just say I identify as woman and get this opportunity and take it away from a young woman. Uh, that 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 basically flushes most of what Title IX was supposed to offer to American women. Absolutely, I agree one hundred percent. I, I uh, where are the lawyers in this? Um, I think the people, uh, women are afraid to say anything. Don't ask me why. Boy, I would be out there with my, you know, with my signs. Um, I haven't done it yet, but, you know, I'm tempted to just go down there and go down to the U and go in and say, what's going on here? But nobody will do it, Lars. I don't know why, what they're afraid of. Um, if they're afraid that the far left's going to come banging on the door, I'm sure that they probably are. They don't want BLM and Antifa in their driveway holding signs. Um, and maybe that's what it is. But if the if the girls and the women don't step up, women's sports will be will be over in in a short period of time. I um, agree with. I don't you. understand. And, sorry, Sally. Go, oh, go ahead. ahead. No, you go. The, ahead. the last one I'm <laughs> going to say with this transgender issue. I was listening to a clip on C-SPAN of Representative Summer Lee with Riley Gaines and talking about sports and the sense of self esteem and self worth. If they're that big on transgender, create your own division. Have a, a men's a division, a women's division, and a trans division. Let them play, but let them play in their own division and not with with, with claiming their girl and playing a girl's division. That's See, not and, like someone's going to get hurt. That well, and I was going to ask you about that next. Not as much an issue in golf, but in volleyball, we've already seen incidents where a male player spikes the ball and hits a young lady in the head or in the face, yeah. and and has been yeah. people have gone to the hospital. What should we tell them about that? Do you tell your daughter, go ahead and play, but if the guy hits that ball, he may just damage you? That's right. It, well, and the other thing, too, is the girls need to band together. They just have to say, look, at, we're not going to play and forfeit. And I know some teams have done that. I've read about it, that they've done that. They haven't participated. It's huge in women's cycling. We're now these cyclists, these boys, you know, men cycling with women. They're winning. And if the women in powerlifting and if the women will boycott the event, that's the effect it's going to have. They, the, they the, need to do it. The mm-hmm. women have to band together. I had that I had that discussion with a caller yesterday, and I said, "But you're asking this these other young ladies forfeit your scholarship, forfeit your education, forfeit your basically you're going to be out of volleyball if you forfeit unless they actually turn around and change the policies. You're out of volleyball. You're probably out of the university where you got the scholarship, and all that goes away. 
I want people who are outside of that. I want NOW. I want American citizens. I want parents to stand up and object to this nonsense. That is Sally Sisk, who's a member of the PGA of America, former golf professional at the Vintage Club in Indian Wells, California. Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. When it comes to health, we're all on our... It's Friday, Friday. Yeah, it's Friday. Woo! Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. the cost of Christmas has climbed so high, even the head of the Biden crime family finds it expensive. Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. Merry Christmas from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if Joe Biden has not thoroughly scrooged you enough, and I said scrooged you enough, uh, I want you to consider this. For a real lump of coal in your stocking at Christmas time, consider the idea that Joe Biden's America now has made it so expensive to buy a home that it's less expensive uh, to be able to go out and rent a place than it is to buy a home. And it's tremendously expensive because of interest rates for you to be able to buy any kind of house using a home mortgage. So I thought to talk about that. One of the great supporters of this program is Nick Shivers in his real estate business, the Nick Shivers team. Hey, Nick, welcome back. Hey, Lars. With the holiday season, it's Old St. Nick, okay? Okay, we're going to call you Old Old St. Nick. Nick. (laughs) At least you're not trying to drop coal in people's stockings. But what's happening, because some of us would look at this and say, well, interest rates will eventually come down, we hope. We don't know when. Uh, but, But even when they do, is the dream, the American dream of owning your own home, is that slipping away and maybe not just temporarily? Well, Yesterday, we had old Mr. Powell. He came in, and they didn't do anything. But the market, because the little Fed dot plop is saying that, okay, in 2024, we'll probably see three price cuts. So they're in their language. They're saying they're going to make a pivot. They're going away from breaking the employment issue. So in the last five weeks, Lars, we went from 8% interest rates to the, the, what I saw today was 6.62%. So let's just put that in correlation to what, what you see in the Portland market. Let's say a $500,000 home, 20% down, which is still significantly high. I understand that. That is a savings in a month of $375. So even though home values are still at historic highs, and I'm a little concerned, you know, cause when, if volatility, There is no no stability in this market whatsoever, and it's all based on, you know, interest rates. And interest rates just drop down. We'll probably see a little bit of intake of more showings. 
we're at the slowest time of year. But yes, as you ask, it is still an affordability nightmare across the board. Oregon was the, one of three states in all of the nation that saw home values go down. So remember, all those other states are still seeing prices climb. And when you have those interest rates at that higher level, it just makes it very challenging, for the, especially for that new millennial group that is the biggest buying group that we've had in history that hasn't already purchased. Is there any place in America that's actually showing some good results? Good results in, in uh, price. home value. And, yes. and affordability, I guess, is what it comes down to. Because it doesn't matter what the price is. It matters can you afford the price, depending on where you are and what you're buying. Yes. If, if you're looking, Lars, I, I think one of the things, you know, uh, you always hear Paul. I heard, I think, Markle out there saying that all the hedge funds are ca- causing prices to go up. That's why home values are going up. Or maybe it's the, the thing that they said that real estate agents are charging too much money. That's why home values are going up. But the, the fact is, Lars, it's about supply and demand. And when Multnomah County and, I mean, the statistic that we talked about two months ago, where 23% of the cost of building a home in California is based on permits and bureaucracy. Okay. It's about, you got to get more houses and you got to be able to build them more affordably. And the, the, the bureaucrats can't keep saying we need affordable housing, but you know what? We're going to increase the permits another 10% because we need the tax for the homeless. I mean, it just doesn't work in a, well, capital business. And and it's not, I mean, there was a story, and I wish I had it right in front of me, the Wall Street Journal did it on some apartment complex, and it was a small one in Los Angeles, where it took them 17, might even taken them 18 years to get it built. And it wasn't because of anything extraordinary they were doing. They just said the whole process is so gummed up. And the folks who gum it up are not the laborers. They're not the folks who own the land. They're not the folks who hammer the nails. They're not the anybody else. It's the government that has been jamming this up. So if they artificially restrict the building of rental housing, and then you artificially restrict the number of houses built, then rent's going to go up, mortgage is going to go up, and interest rates are high, again, because of the government making decisions about how they're going to manage the money supply. Uh, they're doing all the things they can to make it extraordinarily expensive to live. Not, not you know, whether you buy a house or rent a place, if, if if they're not building more apartments, if they're not building more houses, both of those supplies are constrained. Uh, you know, you'll still make a lot of money when you rent apartments, but but if you're not allowing people to build them, if the supply can't go up, you are forever constrained, and you'll just fall farther and farther behind, won't you? Right. I mean, if you, if you still look, if you look at that CPI, you know, CPI has definitely come down, but shelter, Lars, is still behind transportation is the still the highest, uh, it's at 6.5. Um, so Lars, you know, Newsom said that he was going to, you know, he goes on stage and says that California is doing so well. You know, they, they had over a hundred million dollars for housing. And I think the average cost of like a 400 square foot house, we talked about this about six months ago, was like over $800,000. Lars, you can't solve a crisis by overtaxing and making things so difficult that you can't. 
So, so when you have the government saying we've got a hundred million for housing, everybody cheers, and you say, but if you divide that by the average cost, we'll be able to build a hundred and twenty houses out of that in a state of forty million people. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's you know it's it's really good to be able to just talk the talk um, and just sit there and say that you're going to solve a problem without really being able to. Lars, you know I am. I love Oregon. I love Portland. But if you don't make it easy to build new construction, affordable new construction, you know, you're never going to get this affordability crunch that we have in the Portland market under control. And by the way, just for a matter of perspective, uh, late 2020, so heading right up to the election, the uh, average, well, the average cost of payments on a new home, 1746 bucks. You know, so yep. affordable, if you balance that against wages, has now risen to $3,322 in the third quarter of this year. And now you're saying, and the good news is we're not at 8% interest on mortgages. We've dropped all the way right. to six and two-thirds. That is Nick Shivers, one of the great supporters of this program. His real estate business is the Nick Shivers team. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. And check me out on Instagram. you like what you hear right lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you if you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism it's right here every day at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our twitter poll you'll find a brand new question each and every day we write it from the news of the day. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X if you prefer, or you can find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. And I try to follow the events on Capitol Hill, although that place is as Looney Tunes as anything in our government right now. But the Congress is tied up right now uh, because of the fact that Republicans have said we are not going to grant $56 billion in domestic emergency funding requests for things like child care, natural disasters, high-speed Internet, and all the other stuff that the administration wants unless, unless the administration, the Biden administration, gets serious about the border. So, uh, because I don't entirely understand it, we decided to get our friend Romina Bacha on, who is Director of Budget and Entitlements at the Cato Institute. Romina, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Have I accurately described the mess that's on Capitol Hill that I guess has the Senate sticking around till Monday when all those senators would like to go back and take a few weeks off for Christmas? Uh, yes, just about. I, I, I'm not, not happy with the position that the Republicans are taking on this either because my position continues to be that if additional emergency spending is necessary and is a priority for this Congress, then they should pay for it. They should pay for it today 
with uh, cutting wasteful spending and, and addressing improper spending and waste, fraud, and abuse. There is actually hundreds of billions of dollars in those areas if Congress got to work. And if they can't find savings immediately, then they should adopt offsets in the future. They should pay back the emergency spending this year with uh, spending reductions over the next five years uh, because uh, we, we cannot afford it at $2 trillion in deficits and interest rates at historic highs to continue to blow up the federal budget deficit, which is what they would be doing with this emergency spending package. So the border negotiations are all good and well, but that's not going to help us pay for uh, this new emergency spending that could be 100 or, or, or $160 billion if the administration gets their way. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. The, the whole idea in Capitol Hill I've heard described as pay-fors. That is, you want a, a billion for this, find a billion of other stuff to cut. And, Romina, a, am I right to be suspicious that when they say, oh, uh, we want to spend $162 billion right now, but we promise, cross mm-hmm. our hearts and hope to die, that we'll pay it back through savings we'll find over the next you know, year or, or five years, I never believe that they're going to ever find those savings. They just want to spend the money and promise that they'll gladly pay you back some other time. Should we believe even those promises? Or should we say, you want to spend that money now? Find the savings now in today's budget. Well, I think that would be better to find the savings now because Congress also has a tendency to waive these future savings uh, when the future comes. However, at this stage, they're not even making any false promises that they're going to repay those funds. The, the problem we have with emergency spending that is getting worse is that Congress has figured out that it's an unlimited loophole that they can basically label anything as being for an emergency. Um, there are no strict guidelines that they're held accountable for. In fact, a lot of members, when they see something labeled as emergency, they don't look twice. They just assume that that's what that must be. And so with that uh, attitude, we have now added roughly 43% of the national debt is uh, is it can be attributed to emergency spending. We did uh, an, an analysis that had never been done before, looking at emergency spending over the last 30 years, going back to 1992, and we identified almost 12 trillion. This is before interest. <laughs> on the debt from that spending in emergency spending, which on a $27 trillion debt is, uh, is almost 43%. So it is sizable, and Congress keeps using that category in ways that it was not intended. You know, and, and I, I guess, Romina, I always think of it in somewhat personal terms because I think it makes it more understandable for somebody like me. But every family out there that's facing higher costs, largely because I think of Joe Biden, uh, they sit down at the end of the month or at the beginning of the month and they say, OK, what do we absolutely have to have this month? We've got to pay the rent. We've got to pay the mortgage. We've got to pay for our car payments. We have to pay for utilities. We have to keep the lights turned on. We've got to pay for groceries. Everything else is on the want-to-have list, and they make cuts. And, and the cuts are things that actually affect things they want to do. Uh, family might have already said, we're cutting our cable plan. You know, we're doing uh, this, we're doing that. We're selling one of our two cars. We can't afford both of them. They make those hard decisions. Why is Congress inca- seemingly incapable of doing that same thing? Yeah, they are not incapable. They are just unwilling. And for as long as uh, 
taxpayers and their constituents will let them get away with it, they're going to keep doing that. And we argue in our piece in the Washington Examiner that emergency funding deserves extra scrutiny because it faces less oversight and bypasses the typical trade-off considerations that we want Congress to make if they're going to be good stewards of taxpayer money. And that's where the problem lies, is that American families, they spend their own money, so they're going to be more careful, and when they're going over budget, they will face the consequences. But when Congress goes over budget, they're spending American taxpayers' money, and for the most part, they're spending the money of future taxpayers, children that haven't even been born yet, people that have no voice in the political process because they're not voting. That's what happens every time they add another dollar to the deficit, is that they're pushing it off onto the next generation, who will not only pay for today's spending, but also the interest costs that we will incur as a result of this irresponsible deficit spending. Well, and Romina, I also try to come up with ideas that are actually are workable. I mean, I'm, because occasionally I'll get callers who will say, well, let's do this. And they talk about things that aren't even possible. But is it fair to say that right now there is still literally hundreds of billions of dollars out there that was distributed during the, so, the pandemic emergency uh, that hasn't even been spent? Congress could say we're clawing that back. We know we gave this to schools. We gave it to all kinds of other entities in America because there was an emergency at the time. And many of those institutions didn't spend those dollars. Well, the emergency is long over. Say, fine, if you didn't spend it, send it back. We're canceling that out. And we're going to use that to pay for this. That's available to them, isn't it? That money is available, but we would actually have to have a change in the law. This is the crazy part, is that the way the law currently works is that when Congress authorizes money to be spent, agencies cannot just give that money back. They're required under law to spend it, and so you get really wasteful spending because uh, they can't give it back. We actually have to change the law to allow them to give it back. I know that sounds crazy, but that is current law. And, well, be, uh, and be, yes, because a lot of that be, spending was wasteful. <laughs> yeah, just so people understand, when Congress decides to spend money, it's called an appropriations bill. And an appropriations yes. bill is a law. Fine, they've said we've appropriated this money for this purpose. But all this yes. takes is for the House and Senate to say, we gave you the money during what we thought was an emergency. You didn't spend the money. Yes. It wasn't needed during the emergency. The emergency is over. Can Republicans and Democrats get together on that and say, let's go back and change the law? It takes a vote in the House and a vote in the Senate and a signature at the Oval Office, and they're done, right? That's what it would take, yes, because if the agencies just tried to give the money back, that would be considered impoundment, which is illegal. The administration is not allowed to impound funds. That's what that would be considered. But, yes, Congress can absolutely take that money back. The, the issue is that the Democrats want to spend more. Even if that money is going to be wasteful, they seem to be on a crusade to just spend more and grow the federal budget. I, I, I can't explain it any other way because every a reasonable Democrat, too, should see all the waste that has happened because so much money was put out during the pandemic and the massive inflation that we have suffered. And yet they don't seem to be able to grasp that or they don't want to understand it. And so they're pushing to spend more money, push more 
money out the door. We saw this in the appropriations bills in the Senate, where they did not stick to the debt limit deal that they struck in May with the Republicans and then Speaker McCarthy and the... Romina, I'm going to have to cut it off at that point. That's Romina Bacha. She's Director of Budget and Entitlement at the Cato Institute. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, if I'm wrong in saying that I think the temporary extension of Section 702 is wrong and that the Republicans sold out the best interests, privacy interests of American citizens, I'm sure that James Jarnowski will set me straight. He is senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lars. Just a little primer, and you correct me if I'm wrong. Section 702 grants to federal agencies the power which they have you know, routinely abused to the tune of hundreds of thousands of times uh, in recent years to spy on Americans who are accused of no crime and suspected of no crime. Have I overstated what 702 does? No, that's exactly right. The program is meant to go and help the intelligence community go and target the communications of non-U.S. persons. But in the process of doing so, they often collect Americans' data and they go and they search through that without a warrant. So it's an egregious violation of their civil liberties, in my opinion. Well, and the other the other piece to that is today, especially because of technology, it wouldn't be difficult for an agency that says we need to keep an eye on foreign nationals uh, because of national security to be able to segregate uh, the you know so that you protect the privacy inter- interests of Americans who get caught up in those wiretaps uh, and segregate their information, their identities, and their words away from the words and the identities of the foreign nationals. They could do that. They've chosen not to, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's very simple for them to be able to respect the constraints that are placed on them by the Constitution. But like anything else, when you have this nice shiny tool at your disposal that you can use, why not go and uh, you know proceed to go and leverage it to the best of your ability? While there's a lot of legal uncertainty as to whether or not you can actually get away with some of this stuff, so they're going to go and continue to have it as they can until they're told otherwise. And that's where Congress was supposed to come in and have something there to go and hold them accountable for all those abuses. Well, how it is how is it we have a bare majority of Republicans, 221, who voted uh, uh, Wednesday on the impeachment of Joe Biden? So they were there for that one. But on this one, only 73 Republicans and 45 Democrats opposed the bill. So it had bipartisan opposition, just not enough to win the day. Why did Republicans agree to sign off on this? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's because it's exactly the reason why leadership went and put it into the NDAA conference bill. The National Defense Authorization Act is probably one of the few must-pass bills that Congress has to tackle every year, and there's usually a little bit of something in it for everybody, right? So voting against that bill uh, makes it very difficult for you uh, because of those kinds of reasons. And 
And I think at the end of the day, there are a lot of members who certainly empathize with our position, but, you know, they made it, it was very hard for them to go and vote against that when, when they had all those other interests in the NDAA that they did support. Um, so that, that's why I think it kind of played out the way that it did. Obviously, we'd well, love to see more members of Congress standing up against this kind of stuff, but in some ways, it's not necessarily surprising. Well, the other piece to this, when they when they say, and I've heard this defense, it has to be a few dozen times in the last 24 hours saying, but it's only a temporary extension. To me, temporary extensions that violate the privacy and the constitutional rights uh, of, of American citizens are like being a little bit pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either invading the civil rights of American citizens and the privacy of American citizens or you're not. And when you say, well, but we're only doing it for a little while, uh, is, is that a reasonable defense? No, not in my opinion. And the reality is, is that it's a short-term extension in name only. So while it goes and technically extends the FISA authorities until April of 2024, well, what we worry might happen is that the administration's intelligence communities would go to the FISA court and ask for a new certification of their spy authorities. And those certifications are given out on a year over year basis. Right. So it's actually not an extension in 2024, but it could go out as far as 2025. That's where we're worried very seriously about this short term reauthorization, because there was no limiting language that prevented that kind of a scenario from playing out. So it's something that we'll have to monitor very closely between now and April. I'm talking to James Zernowski, who's a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, I'm an old guy, so I'm old enough to remember when Democrats used to care about the government spying on people, and they almost made it sort of a left-wing cause, as though it didn't happen to conservatives as well. How did this flip happen, where all of a sudden uh, uh, most of the Democrats are in favor of spying on Americans? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and in some ways I think it, it mystifies me because, to your point, they've historically been pretty strong on civil liberties issues, and I don't want to knock them too hard because there were actually a number of de- Democrats that did join in saying no to the NDAA, um, and, and when we're talking about this broader FISA reform fight, there's actually quite a number of Democrats that are certainly on board with that, notably Senator Ron Wyden, Representative Sarah Jacobs, Representative Jayapal. I mean, we have a lot of strong allies that are on both sides of the aisle, that care deeply about this issue set. It's just that, again, this is why it kind of played out the way it did. It got attached to that must-pass bill. And uh, I think everybody knows that when it's those kinds of bills, it makes it very hard for members to go and say no to it. Um, so that's why we're going to continue to do the work that we're doing at Americans for Prosperity, as well as the other members of our coalitions that we work with in this particular issue set, to make sure that we can hold the intelligence community accountable um, as they come up with this new deadline and not let it go and continue to be this push the book, you know, push this issue down the road as much as possible with kicking the can here. Okay. So James, do you get any sense that given that this has probably received more attention in the last year or so than it has in a long, long time, that the agencies understand the public opposition and even the congressional opposition to the abuses and plan to constrain their behavior? Or do you think they're going to take this as a single of, yep, we got caught. We, we, we surveilled literally hundreds of thousands of times american citizens not accused of a crime not even suspected of a crime and congress doesn't seem to give a damn so we're going to keep on doing just what we've been doing all along which one do you think is more likely i think it's a little bit of both in some ways but i would say that it's actually more that they realize that people are not on their side on this issue more so than the uh, the latter description that you had there because um, ideally, they wanted to go and have a clean reauthorization of Section 702. That's what they and the administration have been pushing for the bulk of this year. 
Uh, they never had the votes for that, unsurprisingly, because the American people in Congress were not with them on that. Then they thought they could get behind a very weak reform and name-only kind of bill out of the House Intelligence Committee. They didn't even have the votes to get that done. So I think that's why the short-term reauthorization came into play, because now they have to actually seriously sit down and think through what can they live with while we go and try to advocate for the same reforms that we've been advocating for this whole time, because that's how we go and restore the lost trust in these very institutions that have violated the law flagrantly, as you've mentioned, and really, you know, just undermine the trust in the American people in the very institutions charged with protecting them from these kinds of threats. And is there anything that protects America from having these very tools used as they as I believe they have been used uh, through the FISA court? During an election, because 12 months, less than 12 months from now, we've got an election coming up. And if these intelligence agencies in the deep state are on the left, as they always seem to be, uh, they could they could be a tremendous benefit to the Democrats in a way that cheats Americans out of a choice of their own leaders. Yeah, right now, the, the FISA Act is remaining exactly the way it is. So it's something that is certainly of concern. There's no changes, no reforms to anything like that. Um, so that's why, again, I think that it's incredibly important for us uh, to go and work with Congress, the great members that we've been working with, to ensure that we get the reforms that are needed um, to hold the FBI as well as the rest of the intelligence community accountable for their repeated and flagrant violations of the law here. The worst thing that's happened to anybody that's violated this law, by the way, Lars, to my knowledge, is they've gotten probation. And that's just wild to me. And that was for lying to the FISA court, if memory serves right. So that, that's just insane. We need to do better than that. Americans expect more. And time to fix FISA is now not after the election. No, it should get fixed, but I don't have a great deal of confidence that the Republicans will stand up and get it done. James, thanks very much. That's James Janowski, Senior Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. you wish you could say more with Lars. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. I want to mention one thing before I go to our naysayer. Republicans, I think, have sold out Americans. And I say that because I know there are some of you who listen to this show who say, Lars, you never criticize the Republicans. But check out what just happened. Uh, Republicans have voted for a an extension. Now, they'll say it was a short extension. I don't care how long the extension was. It, you know, that's like being a little bit pregnant. If you've extended warrantless spying on Americans by the federal government, that's wrong. And yet the House of Representatives voted yesterday on Wednesday to 310 to 118. So a lot of Democrats, uh, a bunch of Republicans voted to extend the federal government's warrantless spying on American citizens. It's known as Section 702 of FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It has been abused over and over again. It has been used to spy on Americans who have not committed any crime, are not suspected of any crime, and yet it's been used 
to do uh, to, to do spying on Americans without a warrant as re- required by the Constitution. And I would quote Rick Grinnell. He was the former acting director of national intelligence. And what he put on X or Twitter, he said, you won't be allowed to say that you understand the abuses of the FBI if you vote to reauthorize the current FISA program. That is exactly what Republicans did. And that was a sellout of Americans' freedom and security to say the federal government can spy on Americans who are not suspected of any kind of crime and that they can do it without going to court, persuading a judge that there's probable cause and getting a warrant to do it. On that note, let's go to John, who's a naysayer. Hey, John, we welcome naysayers every day of the week. First Amendment Friday, the same. Uh, What do you and I disagree about that makes you a naysayer? So the previous caller, a few callers back, made made mention about a traitor president that would take arms against his own people. Did, did I hear that correct? I think what he was talking about, no, what the emailer was saying was that any government, if, if a government will not defend its own borders with deadly force, meaning guns, uh, but it will use deadly force by arming 5,000 IRS agents, that that's a bad government. Uh, okay, the armed federal agents inside the yeah, you keep asking me a question, but John, what do we disagree about? I haven't heard that yet. Because I just wanted to make sure I understood everything correct, so I don't stick my foot in my mouth or, or say something that's not okay. correct. So, the re- and, th- and thank you for confirming I heard it correct. The, the, what, what this reminds me of was when we had riots and problems here in Portland, which I'm certainly not defending that, and I'm not saying it's correct at all. It was wrong, in fact, is what I'll say. But what was just as wrong was when Trump authorized disguised federal agents to be on the streets in downtown Portland detaining people with force. And Why with is that? that why, since, since Donald Trump sent federal agents specifically to protect federal property, federal buildings, including a very expensive federal courthouse, why was it wrong for the president to send federal agents to protect a federal courthouse from being burned down to the ground, which is what Antifa and BLM tried to do? Well, Trump... <laughs> What Trump did was, and, and your statement, if it was, if your statement was accurate, you would be correct. Unfortunately, the statement you've made is not accurate. I Tell me what part of it is inaccurate. I, 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 work for, I work for news also, Larson. I'm in broadcasting also. My name's Trump Lars, not people. Larson, but go ahead. I'm no, sorry, but, but what, is, what is inaccurate had, about what I said? People. The president sent he, federal agents to protect federal property. What's the problem? Yes, and I'm, and I'm trying to answer you, Lars. Uh, in this case, I personally witnessed with my own eyes where people were two blocks away, two to three blocks away from the federal courthouse on city property. Doesn't matter what property they were on. What, what matters people. is what threat they posed. If those were people trying to take action against federal property, they're fair game. And are you telling me that when people try to set a building on fire, a federal building on fire, that law enforcement should not attempt to apprehend them? You know, what I'm telling you is law enforcement should attempt should attempt to apprehend those people. Are U.S. Marshals law enforcement, John, John, in a park. John, are law are U.S. Marshals law enforcement? 
You and I both know the answer to that, Lars. Don't they're, they're law enforcement. So is Customs and Border Protection. Their agents were involved. So is FBI. Their agents were involved. Yes. All those federal agencies so, are all law enforcement agencies. I still don't know what your objection is. Lars, let me ask you a question. Should uh, they be protecting want. federal property, or should they be two to three blocks away in a city park? Well, John, uh, the, the answer is that you can pose a threat to a building from two or three blocks away. And there were people who were doing that. There's nothing that says if you're protecting a building, you can only be standing within six feet of the building and anybody standing 20 feet away or 200 feet away or 2,000 feet away is not a threat, right? Is that what you're trying to say? What's the more obvious threat? Somebody trying to light a building on fire? Or somebody standing two or three blocks away. In a somebody trying to light a building on fire. And if they're involved in that activity and they flee to two or three blocks away, it doesn't mean you're playing tag and you're a kid and you can shout, Ali, Ali, oxen free. I'm, nope. I'm no longer close enough to the building that I've been targeting Hello? to be. Con- I'm, I can hear you just fine, John. I don't know what's wrong with your phone. But the fact that you're trying to defend terrorists, domestic terrorists, who tried to set fire to a federal building doesn't make any sense at all. But I appreciate the call. I always appreciate a, uh, a, a, good, a good naysayer. Uh, let me go to Richard. Hey, Richard, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, how's it going? It's going very well today about, for a First uh, Amendment Friday. Yes, sir, it is. Uh, I got a quick question about uh, considering what we know about transgenders and their increased risk of suicide. Think of committing suicide would probably not mind hurting others. Do you think they have the right illegally own firearms well the technical answer is yes they do i mean they have the right because if you go down to uh, buy a gun and you want to fill out the form 4473 there are a bunch of things that will get you turned down one is if you're a convicted felon one is if you're a user of illegal drugs including marijuana uh, one is if you've ever had a judge commit you to a mental institution by order of a judge. If you've volunteered yourself and you went to a mental institution, said, I'm having troubles, can you help me sort things out, you, you, you won't be turned down. But right now, the, the answer to your question is, somebody who says he or she is transgender is still able to buy a gun unless they are a domestic abuser, a convicted felon, or they've been sent to a mental hospital by a judge. So the technical answer is yes. Is there a reason to question, should somebody who has the kind of mental difficulties that makes them much more likely to commit suicide, should they be allowed to? Uh, I think I think you could make the argument they shouldn't. But the answer is right now, until they change the law or change the procedure, they will be. And don't count on the Biden administration to make those kinds of changes to the Form 4473, because that ain't going to happen. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.